Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hey everybody, hey everybody, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the podcast where we do a film a week from two film geeks. We've got me, Rob, we've got Brady, and we also have a special guest on the phone. Her name is... Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> okay, there you are. <laughs> Sorry, I probably should have told you you were supposed to chime in with your name, but, you know, I pointed at you. Didn't you see it? Oh, wait. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm Brady. I can also say my own name. Of course you can. Of course you can. Um, this week we did Dogtooth, which Rachel has been dying to do with us forever. It's a 2009 film by Yargos Lanthimos. Yargos I, Lanthimos. I, oh, I pronounced it right? Yeah, you did good. Did you speak Greek, Rob? Yes. It's all Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yes, feel, uh, d- this is one of these spoilerful podcasts where we interrupt each other and say everything all the time. So you should have seen the movie first, and, and Rachel, feel free to chime in anytime you want. You can cut me off. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Yes. So we normally start with the plot synopsis, right? Yeah. Uh, kind of an interesting one to plot synopsize, because in some ways it's just all these episodes in a, a very strange family's life. Uh, but there is sort of a, an eventual plot arc that I guess builds up in there, leading to the ending. Uh, that said, who wants to give it the first go? Should I go? Uh, you can try. I mean, it's a tough one to plot synopsis. Yeah, let me, let me see what I can do. So <laughs> Fucked up thing after fucked up thing happens. So, <laughs> in what I presume is Greece, um, probably in the modern age, but... Uh, inter- the first thing to note, though, is this is a film about isolation, among the many things it's about. So we don't get a lot of the outside world. We get this family in this house, and they're three uh, kind of teenage, early 20s siblings, two sisters and a brother. And the first time we meet them, they're putting on an old tape recorder to uh, learn what uh, I guess is a daily or weekly vocabulary lesson. And... The words that are said are sea and excursion and uh, motorway. And the first sense we get is that they're given vocabulary lessons that are wildly erroneous. They're, yeah, I think the word aphasia was in there somewhere. They're, they're told, so, you know, they're, they're told that the meaning of the sea is a, uh, what was it again? Oh, a chair. Like a leather chair is the sea. And a motorway is a strong wind. And an excursion is a strong material used to create floors. Uh, So these kids are living in isolation, isolation that's imposed upon them by their two parental figures, the mother and father, and uh, they're not allowed to leave their house. Uh, And I think it's partly that this fear is put in them that if they do leave their house, uh, something called a cat (laughs) will tear them apart. Well, I, I'm not sure if, if the cat, I think that particular wrinkle that it is a cat um, that they're freaked out about is invented in the course of the plot. Well, no, see, I think that moment's a, a flashback. 
Oh, I see what you mean. Because I think what happened, or is at least alluded to, is they had another sibling that maybe actually broke free of this place. And when that happened, the father was like, okay, I'm going to stage it to look like I've been attacked by a huge mountain lion. I'm going to say it killed their brother. And from now on, no one's going to want to leave because they think that a cat is this thing that can literally rip you to shreds. Got it. Okay. Yeah, there, there's That's probably it, the, a bit of me not understanding this movie. Well, it, it, it's interesting because <laughs> watching it this time, I was like, oh, it's the one time in what seems to be a sequential movie that we get kind of a flashback. Mm. And Rachel, it's your second time too, right? I've seen this about, I would say about five times now. Oh, okay. And, and Rachel, are you <laughs> okay? This my fifth viewing, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah, basically, we get these episodes and snippets of these children, and they really... I use the word children not only because they are the couple's children, but because their deprivation of, A, good information, and B, being able to leave their uh, house, which should be familiar to anyone listening in the current day uh, during quarantine. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that, they are, they're stunted. They literally are like babies. At one point, we see the adult son, who might be the oldest of them, run into his parents' room and kind of wedge his way in between his parents like a, you know, a five-year-old child would do after a nightmare. Yes, he needed comfort. Mm -hmm. He needed to. Mm -hmm. And so the one uh, interloper or you know, extra human element that's added to this is every now and then... And it's not explained why exactly, but every now and then the father will bring home a security guard from the office where he works. The father's the only one who we see is allowed to leave the compound. And he'll bring home a female security guard to have sex with his son and, you know, spend the afternoon there. Which, I mean, to me is kind of uh, this very patriarchal thing where he's tending to his son's sexual needs but the sexual needs of the daughters are never brought up, right? No. Right. So, yeah, so we get... And it's, it's uh, interesting well, to... Well, the sexual needs of the security guard are... Well, I, I doubt the father's taking her... She doesn't live in an isolated compound, so she could uh, ostensibly have sex with whoever she wanted. I think it's, you know, for the sake of the son, kind of this patriarchal thing of like, oh, well... I'm good with fucking up my kids, but I don't want him to become someone who doesn't know how to procreate and, you know, continue the family line is the way I took that. Um, but it's a very oblique movie, so it's hard to speak definitively about things that happen because it kind of is about the nature of being stunted and misinformed, right? So, But what eventually mm -hmm. happens is this outside influence gradually, subtly warps the dynamic of these kids. Normally they're taught to be very polite, very submissive. You know, they play games where they're blindfolded and have to follow their mother's voice. They're very, very reliant on these parents. Uh, but eventually the eldest daughter starts talking with the security guard and the security guard, well, okay, <laughs> the reason for this is that the adult son won't perform cunnilingus on the woman. And the woman's like, okay, I'm going to talk to the daughter and I'll offer her, if she'll do this, something that she might like, a headband. A headband, yeah, that glows in the dark. And I think what's happening <laughs> there 
is the first thing that's introduced uh, to them that maybe they didn't know about before was this idea of like exchanging services for things you want. But even that gets kind of warped because I don't think the daughter understands that she's bringing sexual pleasure to this person. Because as soon as she has the headband, she does a similar thing with the sister, but she's like, would you lick my shoulder? So I think, you know, this idea is just like, okay, apparently licking is a thing that people enjoy. Maybe I should enjoy that too. Uh, so we're dealing with yeah. characters that have been so stunted by this authoritarian fascist upbringing and by isolation itself that like any normal information gets kind of warped and refracted through that prism. Uh, but what it eventually leads to is the next time the security guard wants that same sexual favor from the daughter, the daughter knows, okay, I'm going to ask for something better, something I really want, which in this case are old videotapes, uh, which I believe are uh, Rocky, Jaws, and Dirty Dancing. Yeah, that's what I was getting from it, too, and that's why she starts saying lines from those movies afterwards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so what this eventually culminates in is the children have been told that they're not ever going to be allowed to leave this compound until they lose and then regrow their dog tooths. It's where the title of the movie comes from, which I think is just like their, their canine teeth. Um, which, okay, so dentally speaking, those you don't lose those, right? That's the idea? Yeah, you don't. And I was thinking uh, that it was going to be uh, wisdom teeth. Like, for a little while, it's like, oh, is he talking about when the wisdom teeth come in? And it's like, oh, no, he, he just never wants them to leave. Yeah, it's, it's a pigs can fly situation, a condition that will never happen uh, unless you're uh, very enterprising and say, knock your teeth out with a, uh, what does she use? Uh, a hand weight. With a hand weight? Oh, my God. The viscerality of that sound design when she knocks her tooth out. Yeah. So, oh, my God. Um, well, let me see. Let me make sure. So that's that. about where we're at in the plot. That's I mean, about where we're at. Um, the older brother kills a cat with garden shears somewhere yeah, before then. And that's how we learn about, you know, one of the tools that has been used to keep these kids compliant and inside the house. Uh, and yeah, eventually, it's the kind of contagious influence of getting this new media and meeting a person who's not part of this strange cloistered universe that leads the eldest daughter to become increasingly rebellious and to actually want to get out there to the point that she, you know, literally mangles her own face to be able to have the justification to do it. And then she she runs to her father's trunk, gets in, knowing that he'll drive the car to work in the morning. And in our last scene, we just hold for uh, a painfully long time on the trunk of the car, um, not knowing whether the daughter is dead inside, whether she'll ever be able to get out. And uh, the film ends like that. That's a good plot synopsis, I would say. <laughs> I don't know, Ra Rachel, did I miss anything? Um, no, I, I think that you're absolutely spot on. And I just want to point out, you know, when this film came out in 2009, uh, David Lynch said that this was one of his favorite films that he has seen in the past five years. Um, and I think the phrase. reason is because there is a very episodic uh, nature to the narrative. Um, that many people did describe as, as Lynchian at the time. And I, and I think Lantimos has gone on record for saying it was influenced by films like Eraserhead. Um, 
So I, I really like the episodic nature of this film. Um, the only thing I wanted to point out of one of my favorite scenes, um, the scene where they are listening to Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah. Um, this happens, uh, I think, about two-thirds of the way through. And uh, the father says, let's put on Grandpa. <laughs> and the kids, not, not knowing that who Frank Sinatra is or having any cultural context, um, listen to the American word. And the father says um, they, that this actually means love your mother and father, obey them. Um, this, oh, I think I, I wrote down a note here um, and translated it as to leave this house and be safe. Never leave this house and be safe outside. No. <laughs> to leave this house and not be safe outside. And my house is beautiful and I will never leave you. And those two really stuck out in my mind during this viewing uh, because of quarantine and, and isolation and um, the fears that we all have of leaving the house and also uh, the fact that we, a lot of us believe now that our house is beautiful and we'll, we should never leave it. Right. <laughs> so, it's it's interesting to thinking, point that out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, what's interesting, yeah. and I know maybe we, we I need to do our grades first, but the use of fly me to the moon and then also the fact that the words in their you know bullshit vocabulary lesson or sea motorway excursion they're all things that ex uh, suggest escape and the ability to travel and yet they're used to like kind of distort the meaning and to make them not want to do those very things i thought was really mm -hmm. interesting yeah oh, i agree I'll, small anecdote uh in a much less fucked up way, my father did a similar thing to us when we were, like, really little. He'd put on a Luciano Pavarotti, uh, but then he'd make up stories as to what he was actually saying. <laughs> Fucking wow, Gary. what was it like for you guys? Do you, do you remember any of those stories, Brady? Uh, I, I remember, I think, Osola Mio, which is, like, probably his most famous. My dad made up a story about, like, two kids on a deserted island. Okay, yeah, I guess my dad would do stuff like that to me, too. Um, to, to the great eye-rolling of my mother. I guess one thing we left out in the plot synopsis that I was noticing was um, they throw rocks uh, over the wall a bunch of times, like a ritualistic hmm. thing as if to have an impact on the outside world. So I, I thought that was, uh, you know, there's several scenes where that's going on. And they've got a pool in the backyard. They do. And uh, there, the dad puts fish in it at one point, and then shoots them with a spear gun. And yeah, okay. I, I, I just a couple. I was plot during, points during I that was scene like, this oh, time. I was like, I wonder if that would work. I wonder if you could go fishing in a in a pool. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, obviously. One of my favorite scenes. It's so hilarious. Obviously, the actor wasn't very good with the spear gun because they cut away at that point. They didn't show him trying. <laughs> Uh, like I that, that that was one of those moments during this film where I actually laughed like out out loud. I was like, "This is kind of brilliant, <laughs> putting the fish in the pool." Well, yeah, there's some. But, uh, there's, it, it is really <laughs> fucked up and weird, but I guess it's it's also like a super dark humor almost ab about the situation. Yeah. It's just that they don't ever really explain the situation. They maybe hint at it and. Uh, it's yeah. It's just like, it's like Stephen Wright telling you jokes, but he, without the punchline. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, what, the other weird thing is like early on, the uh, daughter, the eldest daughter, like is hoping a plane falls out of the sky and you're like, oh, that's pretty fucked up and dark. And then later you realize that the parents will throw these plane toys. So they think planes way up in the sky are actually tiny. And that when they fall, they're just like the size of a toy. Yeah, and, or like they keep the telephone locked in the cupboard. So they think the mom's in the room just talking to herself because they don't know what a phone is. Mm-hmm. So. Another, I was thinking like another thing that's really interesting in this film is the use of, of violence. Um, and another director that um, Lanti most drew parallels to when he uh, released this was Michael Haneke, um, who had a, a year earlier released The White Ribbon. Um, and a lot of parallels were drawn between those two as well. Um, Haneke being an expert on the use of um, family violence to comment on the patriarchy and fascism and, and stuff like that. And I felt like there was definitely an undercurrent of that in this film as well. That's a great comparison to draw. Um, yeah, well, I need to watch The White Ribbon again. And then there's me who doesn't know that director or that film. So uh, I'm sure that what you're saying is, is very great and very <laughs> astute. I'm just... I'm sure we'll get into it. Uh, yeah, do we want to go uh, give our grades? Oh yeah, we'll do the uh, the how did you like it thing. So we'll play, we'll play this guy. And it, no, Brady, it wasn't inspired by Metallica. Hey, 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 how do we like it? But you can think that all you want. Um, Thank Rachel, you, you want to go first and tell us how you like this movie that you've seen five times? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, just to qualify that, that statement, um, I saw it, and I, I was thinking about this when I when I, I wrote a review of it for Letterboxd. Um, I saw it once in Hawaii, and then over the next couple of years, I maybe saw it like two or three times when I was living in, in Hawaii, and then I haven't seen it probably for the past five or six years. So it was really like coming back to a film that I always said that I loved, but that I haven't seen in a really long time. Um, it's been really interesting to watch um, Lanthimos' progression throughout his directorial career. Um, so with really small, you know, budget pieces at first, he started off as an advertising director in, in Greece. So there are some shorts that he made before this. Um, then to Dog Tooth and then Alps, which is a really standout film, in my opinion, too. Um, and then on to some of his, his American films, the films that he filmed in America or, or in, with uh, English speaking actors uh, like The Lobster and um, The Favorite, uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And it's really interesting to me that all of those themes are in this film, like everything about like isolation, um, you know, hell being other people. <laughs> Although in this <laughs> film, you could argue that hell is the absence of, is the absence of other people, you know, For sure, um, yeah because these, this family is so isolated and, and this, it's the isolation that leads to them um, kind of turning in on themselves and become like a twisted version of the family. Um, but the reason why I got to give this film an, an A, um, despite kind of almost wanting to, to downgrade it to a B because uh, Lanthimos has, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, pr progressed as a filmmaker in terms of... Um, his cinematography, his, his direction and stuff like that. The reason why I still love it so much um, is actually because it's so funny. Um, there are so many moments in, in this film that are really, really 
dark, like, like the, for example, like the, the fish in, in the pool and stuff. But there's also moments that are very, very, like, hilarious. Um, and I think that his, this is probably the funniest movie he's made. If he's made a comedy, you could say that Don Seuss was his comedy. <laughs> and that just shows you how dark his, his sensibility really is. Yeah. I think. Absolutely. Um, There's some funny moments so, in The Lobster, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and so for me, that's, that's why I love it. And another reason why I really loved this, this viewing in particular was because um, Mary Stoney, um, who played the youngest daughter, has actually passed away last year oh, no. from pulmonary edema. Oh. She, she was the, very young when she died. Is she the punk singer? And she was a, a punk singer yeah. before she was even an actress. And, you know, watching her performance this time a- around uh, with the knowledge that she's no longer with us, like, it really impacted me. And I was like, wow, she's really gave these amazing performances throughout this film. And I think we're, we're really missing uh, her talent today. Absolutely. Rip. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, here, I'll go next. Here <laughs> <laughs> uh, we go. Um. No, I mean, I mean, having sat with it for about an hour, I, I'm feeling a little bit better <laughs> than I did when I stood up and looked at you on the Zoom call and was like, "What the fuck, Rachel?" <laughs> that happens. But, Sorry, um, I I have to apologize. <laughs> no, you don't have to apologize. No, I, and I can yeah. see I can see the humor and comedy. Like you probably could see it a lot better on a second viewing or a third viewing because I knew nothing about this movie going in, so I was just like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what what's going on? Okay, at some point they're gonna kind of lampshade something for me. So I no 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 no. They're just they're gonna keep telling the joke, and they're never gonna pay it off. And then it's gonna end. And then they're gonna <laughs> laugh at you. <laughs> like that's how I felt kind of watching it the first time. And you know. Um, you know, this had a lot of kind of maybe a Lars von Trier fear t- uh, feel to it, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, like even I guess I mean, despite the fact that it's not a strong makeup thing or anything, like a Matthew Barney sort of sort of tone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, just the sort of like yeah, it's fucked up. Look at the imagery. Look at what's going on. Look at all this stuff. Just look at it. Okay. Yes, <laughs> I'm expressing myself. I'm an artist. <laughs> so I was tempted to give it a s- in, in the C range, but I'm actually mm-hmm. going to go with the B minus because the cinematography is really gorgeous. Um, it's uh-huh. almost like uh, you were saying kind of serialized, Rachel. It's almost like mm-hmm. a bunch of family photographs. Um, <laughs> in it, it's like watching a bunch of, you know, Harry Potter moving picture uh, family photographs in a hall. And there's just something very wrong with this family. And you're just walking down mm-hmm. this hall and seeing all these little snapshots and going like, well, yeah, there was that time that she slashed his arm with a razor, and that time <laughs> that the guy killed the cat with the garden shears, and that time dad, <laughs> uh, dad spear gunned some fish, and uh, they tasted chlorine at the uh, anniversary celebration, and that time that uh, my sister broke the script when she was doing traditional Greek dance or whatever. <laughs> Um, so, you know, like, I, I do kind of like that idea of the way to storytell, and then I also, uh, liked the sort of, it's almost like a Dogma 95, uh, film, where Mm -hmm. everything seems to be with pretty much natural light, all the sound seems to be, you know, live sound, like, it's not, uh, brought in, um, um, 
there's other things that make <laughs> Dogma 95 films, but um, it, my brain is kind of not uh, picking them mm -hmm. up. But that's the whole Lars Von Trier thing that I was kind of, because he made a couple. Um, mm -hmm. And Vincent Gallo made a couple, I think, which you and I saw Brown Bunny together. That was the first movie we saw together way, way, way back when. So, um, yeah, no, I'll give it a, a B minus. B minus. B minus. B minus. Do you mind? Okay. okay. Okay, Rob. I feel okay. you. Well, I guess that leaves me. That leaves you, Brady. All by myself. Okay, uh, we're gonna make it an A sandwich. I'm with Rachel. I, I give it an A. I, I think mm -hmm. this is uh, brilliant. Um, and I'll get into more of the why and my what's it all about. But I'll say this: um, I'm almost caught up on all of Von Trier. Uh, Alps is one I need to see. And there might be one other. Okay. Uh, Von Trier or Yorgos? Oh, sorry, Yorgos. Uh, Lanthimos. Lanthimos, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because uh, I've now seen Sacred Deer, I've seen Lobster, I've seen Favorite, and I've seen this. So uh, my two favorites of Von Trier's right now, and I, I think they're both masterpieces, are this and his most recent, The Favorite. And I'll get into it more, but I, it's what Rachel said that this guy kind of arrived really fully formed um, and <laughs> concerns that are like key to his filmmaking and his obsessions, uh, they're all here as they are in the favorite. Like he's, he's just like got interesting things to say about <laughs> hell as other people and the way people mm -hmm. kind of exert dominance over each other and you know what, what it means to uh, live in a society where power is, is so much a thing, where there's always someone wanting to dominate someone else and this is just I think such a, a fascinating and like elliptical in the best way I, I'll even say as I was first watching I was like okay I know this is a masterpiece but like I'm watching it sort of play out episodically at first knowing it has these great themes and the thing about it that makes it actually not episodic to me in the end is just like they start to accumulate a strange power to me like something about yeah. There's something hypnotic about like the understated humor and the darkness and the absurdity of all this stuff happening. Like, and I especially love the back half of this movie once she gets those tapes. Just like the image of her, uh, images of her reenacting Rocky and that that dance for her parents where it starts out polite and then literally turns into dirty dancing, as, which I take <laughs> as a fuck you to her father. It's just like okay. <laughs> like that's I've always loved that scene, but what stood out to me on this viewing is like she's got such like bratty attitude from the start, and the other sister's such like a sweet little violet. She's just like, oh yeah, we're dancing, and the other one's like all but giving the up yours symbol to her father with each <laughs> dance move. Uh, I I love that scene. Maybe my favorite scene of the movie, but yeah, I, it's just it's just great. It plays. It, the humor and the darkness don't feel jarring. They feel utterly of a piece. And for a guy who's now made this many remarkable films uh, to emerge with his debut, uh, already saying what he wants to say, I think is terrific. Um, and fucked up. This movie, will, if, if this movie doesn't fuck you up, you'll watch it again. Because it's definitely supposed to do that. But well, yeah, it'll fuck you up less on the second viewing. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Because now, I, on the second viewing, you know it ends with a girl probably suffocating in a trunk. So, 
So I would say it does not get easier. Yes. Yes. You know, speaking, I, I, I got to agree. Speaking of that ending shot um, and, and the other films of, of Lanthimos, watching this again, I was struck by how similar that was to the ending scene to the lobster, except we didn't see the act of violence, but it was also in front of a mirror. And I was, I was really struck by the, the similarity of those two endings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of thinking of, like, as you said, themes that he's already come out with and then returned to in another film. Really interesting. Well, um, I guess now we get to get into it. Yeah, we do. We do. What's it all about? I still got to record a sting <laughs> for that someday. Uh, it's, it's been more than seven years, and I haven't done it though. Um, so great. we do it live. We're yeah, like the what, roots. What's it? What's it? What's it all about? <laughs> um. Hmm. Hmm. I've got I've got a brief thing to say. Uh, that I just thought of as you guys were talking, which is kind of like the complicity of the mom. Um, mm. I, I think it's a lot, it's a lot, it's about a lot more than this, but a thought I had is it almost feels like as the viewer and as Brady was saying, like you'd start to kind of accept more and more of this as you go through it. I feel like the mm -hmm. viewer is in the, the standpoint of uh, the mom maybe before. Like, where when he initially started doing all this stuff, she was like, what the, f this is, okay, I, I do have to be, you know, whatever precipitated, I have to be okay with my husband, and it just like slowly and slowly and slowly, she just kind of got on board. Um, That's a great observation. I, I can't now. imagine it, it, uh, it happening any other way. And so us, the viewers, by the end of it, are just kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm here now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay, uh, Rachel, do you want to go next? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, we can go around. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that I... So there's a reason why I wanted to watch this now, and you guys probably figured out it's because of um, the quarantine theme. Um, so it's really hard for me to divorce, like, kind of what it was about 10 years ago um, and not see it in the context of, like, the thoughts I have about it now. Um <laughs> which are like, you know, I think it's about, uh, in my opinion, like I was saying, kind of isolation and the dangers of that. Um, another film about that is called, um, I think this was one of the influence on this film as well, Castle of Purity from 1970. Um, I can't remember the director now, but it's also similarly about a family and uh, a daughter who kind of escapes. Um, other things I was thinking when I, when that theme of isolation came to mind was like the thing, um, and films like that. But interestingly enough, you know, there's no um, alien terror in, in this film. You know, the terror itself is, is human nature. Um, and I think it has a lot to say about um, the patriarchy in general. Um, I really like what Rob had to say about the, the complicity of, of the mom here. I think there's definitely a lot to that. Um, and I don't know, if I could have a thesis statement about it, it, it would be... <laughs> You know, the fa families are seen as, as these pillars of stability. And, you know, in America, too, we always, like, lift up the modern family. But family can be a fucked up place. <laughs> and um, as, yeah. as a psychologist, I certainly, you know, hear a lot of that, although not to this extreme ever. Hardly Ever? No, I will say ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking back. <laughs> 
And um, I think I want to I want to say that I know that Lantimos, um, his mother divorced when he was two. And he uh, his mother also you know raised him alone and then died when he was 17. Um, so his idea of, of a family when he made this film back then was probably different than how he sees family now. But I, I think that um, he was saying that the idea germinated from he was talking to two friends that were getting married and having kids. And they were like, yeah, it's going to be great. And he was like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> family can be pretty shitty. <laughs> and I, I think that there's there's a lot here. Um, I wonder, looking back, what he would say about this now. I haven't seen any any real d- discussion of it, but I just love watching this film in, in quarantine and thinking about, like, you know, how how dangerous it can be for us to hold up, you know, these families um, as kind of nation states uh, of the of the world. And to be honest, how much better it's going to be for kids to be back in school. So that's what I want to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I would draw off the quarantine thing, the observation. Well, we'll put it this way. I hope this isn't too politically blah, blah, blah. But um, <laughs> the idea of arbitrary rules that don't make any sense just because <laughs> they have to make something it's it's like an exercise in control. Mm-hmm. It's like these people are uncontrollable mm-hmm. without rules. All right, so this rule just because, and this rule just because, I have to say something, so I'm saying this. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, in terms of like the authoritarian household that that the father runs, um, it is very much like yeah just because, and these are the rituals we have to do. I'm not sure if the stone throwing is a rebellion act on their part or not. And Mm. then also just kind of, you know, as those rules keep going and going and going, um, it's like you couldn't train out the social aspect of the human. So Mm -hmm. eventually these kids start turning on themselves. Like the girls start, you know, doing things to their brother or the brother starts, uh, you know, just walking around the yard doing weird stuff or, you know, somebody has to glom on to some sort of, it's like, oh, there's not enough people. It's almost like we need people so bad. There's not enough people around. I guess I'll just hit this one that's near me. Ow! Right. (laughs) The cat did it. Cat did it. Before I get onto mine, I just want to piggyback off Rob's here because um, I love the idea that yeah, as it starts to kind of mutate and the outside influences start to have their effect, there's almost like, you know, a backfiring of the control system back upon the parents. I think of like that first scene where the brother gets hit with the hammer and then the daughter is using like the father's own bullshit lie back at him. He's like, a cat with a hammer did it. He's like, I, I know a cat with a hammer didn't fucking hit your brother. And then the very next scene is like when they have real conversations with each other, the father and the mother they have to have them silently because anything they say out loud is now something the kids will pick up on and there's an entirely different reality they've constructed. So they, maybe they did this for control and power, but now they have to live by the rules of these own like strange arbitrary structures they set up. Um, which like to me is a Lanthimos thing that pops up in The Favorite too, how even sometimes a power move that is to benefit you can lock you into a system that you never would have wanted to be a part of. Um, which, let me, so now I'll hop on to what I think it's all about, because 
I think it's very much about fascism um, <laughs> and the way it operates. But Rachel, I love what you said because we think of fascism in the nation state, but then to, I love the micro macro of, but what about fascism within the family unit? Right. What about a family mm -hmm. that operates? The household represents the nationalism. And that's very much like White Ribbon, where it's uh, basically the implication of White Ribbon, uh, Rob, I'll make it short, is it takes place in the days just before World War II, I think, or like a generation before. And this town mm -hmm. of very strict, dominating, abusive, uh, often religious people, and the kind of abuse they heap upon their kids. And the takeaway at the end is, well, these kids that were abused this way that's the generation that's going to grow up and become the Nazis. So like the seeds mm -hmm. of that, that arbitrary abuse and the misinformation and not letting kids know anything other than what you want them to know uh, eventually germinates and, and can mutate into something much larger than just a small town. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think this is one of the most powerful uh, movies about fascism I've ever seen. And, uh, well, no, I, I was going to get into it later, but I'll just say it now is I, I love movies that are more straight over the middle about fascism, say like A Pan's Labyrinth, a movie I really love, but, you know, isn't really, I wouldn't say is playing anything winkingly. It's just very directly like fascism is shitty because um, they're fascists. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think my two favorite movies about fascism might be this and Starship Troopers, which come at mm. the subject with humor and at very like oblique angles to kind of show like it's easy enough to say Nazis are bad but to show kind of the perversion and the absurdity of it of like this is ridiculous but it's also scary like it's to be taken seriously but it's also like so absurd and just warped um, mm. so yeah that that's what I love about this movie is like that humor is reinforcing or maybe even strengthening how uncomfortable and terrible what's going on is. Anyway, that's my, that's my diatribe. <laughs> I think it's a, an A-plus attack on fascism and authoritarianism. Yeah, um, and then you're a psychiatrist, right, Rachel? I guess I'll just say I'm that. I'm a psychologist. Psychologist, psychologist I'm sorry. Can't prescribe any any druggy drugs, but I can listen to your stories. Yeah, I was gonna say psychologist, but I'm like, but if she's a psychiatrist, then I've just belittled the education. <laughs> no, don't worry. You just you just elevated me way beyond my standing. <laughs> I'd rather do Bye. that. Um, but but um, you know, given your training, I'm sure. Well, I noticed some things in here about just like family dynamics in general, as in uh, kind of the elder sister who's acting out and was most prone to acting out uh, throughout is, is sort of the identified patient in the family. And um, right. like the the brother, or the brother, well, yeah, I guess I was just calling him the brother. I didn't even really look at their names, which is another thing we could touch on is like, what is what does the namelessness of this mean? I mean, they did have names, but they were barely, barely mentioned. They were always called she or him or her. They actually um, didn't have names. Oh, yeah, okay. They're just called Eldest and youngest. Claudia so they, they had a name. name. That's right. Yeah. That the visitor had a name. Christina. There we right. go. The security Only guard. Christina had a name. Yeah. Um, and but uh, the brother's kind of like the golden child, or I forget what the psychological term for it is, 
but you know mm -hmm. the 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 favorite or what or whatnot. And so you know, as he uh, <laughs> as he interacts with the rest of the family and things start not going so well, or or like he doesn't want to you know look out look out Christina um, and stuff like that. Uh, he kind of has this whole shame thing and and this and that. So yep. you know, um, mm -hmm. leading uh, from the fascism, this thing, it's like, well, it really does get into the nitty-gritty of, of the family structure as well. So it's, it's mm -hmm. interesting to, I guess, I, that's something that it's yes, about. I, think, <laughs> I, I completely agree, and I think it's fascinating that, you know, this, this, this meditation, uh, this kind of meditative feel about, it, about, like, a family, like, what is family like? And, and I, like I said, there's moments where, you know, I could, I never worked with your ghost. I wish I could, <laughs> but, you know, moments where I definitely felt like, okay, he's commenting on the fact that like a father is, is a father can be a villain, you know? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. A father isn't always this, this protective figure. And, you know, I, I can, I wanted to draw a little bit of a parallel um, if it's, if it's not too, too self-referential between him and uh, Daniel Plainview from last week's podcast. Oh. Um, the only, I, so you guys were saying that he's not a villain last week, and I was thinking I was like, what if what if the dad sees himself as just this really protective dude? Yeah. <laughs> Which I think that Lantimos actually suggested in, in in one interview. He's like, the dad thinks he's doing nothing wrong. Like <laughs> the dad wouldn't see himself as as a villain. Now the mom would. Like you know, the mom you know is is pained by some of the stuff that dad puts his family through. But I'm not sure Dad has any remorse or regret about raising his family this way. What do you guys think? I don't think so either. Uh, I also just want to clarify: I absolutely think Daniel Plainview is a villain. <laughs> I, I, I was the I thought, outlier. I thought, I, I thought last week it was suggested that he that he wasn't, and I was like, oh, uh, this is interesting. Like, Kyan and so. Rob. I'd say we had like a continuum of Kyan, Rob in the middle. I, I think he is a villain, and I think to your point, Rachel, yeah. that's the chilling thing is the, the self-justification and that like, well, it's for protection of the family unit or it's for protection of the state, uh, you right. know, the country, right. but... It's for oil and blowing gold all over the or place. It's for oil. <laughs> yes, Look I was this. waiting for that. <laughs> Happy birthday, I got Brady's you some oil. Brady Daniel played plain view voice is the best thing ever. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. So good. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, if someone could do a Paul Dano, then we'd really be in business. <laughs> Someday. I can't, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Maybe Paul Dano could. Yeah, we'll have Paul Dano on. Um, but yeah, you I, have... Oh, sorry. Just don't you... <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I think that... I, yeah, because I think fascism is like that. Uh, I think he feels utterly justified. Well, and and it's interesting that that um, that unlike there there will be blood, there are no shots of the father alone, except for the one where he's cutting up his pants and um, you know smearing the fake blood on, on on himself. So we don't have any real idea of his motivations. Whereas in there will and there will be blood. There's more solitary shots of plain views. You kind of see his thought process, but the father is really kind of unknowable. And I think maybe Brady has a, I, I know Brady has a great point when he says it's about fascism because 
you know, there's that facelessness of it. There aren't any motivations here for dad, you know? Right. There's and so an... I think it, it is more powerful that, that, that way rather than it being a pure character study of this family, you know? Yeah, I mean, so I, as Brady knows, because we've had many discussions about it, I always have, uh, and, and not in this case, but oftentimes I have, I have problems with the way fascism is thrown around. Um, uh. I've always looked at fascism as like totalitarian um, plus a nationality in which the, um, the population, or in this case the family members, are encouraged in being the watchdogs, you know, of mm. the, the whole totalitarian idea. So whatever the rules mm. are that they say you must do, it's when the population gets indoctrinated into self-policing each other and that it has to have, as this family does, like a nationalistic or so forth thing. It, it, like, it's not just a shitty totalitarian dictator. If you don't have mm -hmm. that whole um, population in self-policing and this and that, it's not fascism. But this certainly is. It's just totalitarian. Fascism, it, Venn diagram, they fit in the middle. But oh, man, those kids <laughs> would kill each other to get that airplane toy. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I'm, yeah, there was a, this is kind of off the beaten path, but um, there was the, the thing before we know that the airplane's falling out of the sky or the toy is when she just kind of says, if that one falls, I'm going to get it. And the mom stops her and it's just like, who deserves it will get it. Yeah, she slaps her. Yeah. And it's like, right? Mm. And, and that was before we knew that about the toys and stuff. And, and I was just maybe like... You know, it, at, at that point, it led us to believe, oh, they are hungering for the outside world. It's like, no, no, they're hungering for little toys that look like the little plane in the sky. Yeah, there's one... Uh, going back depth perception, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> scale humor. It's called scale humor. <laughs> the plane isn't, isn't there. It's just far away. <laughs> so I want to go... That was from back. the Mighty Boosh. That was very... <laughs> Rachel's point and trying to like suss out like what makes this guy tick because all we really get is yeah. he goes to work sometimes uh, he has a co-worker who he lies to he says like his wife's in a wheelchair which is to protect his isolation I guess but like he's not even mm -hmm. himself at work so like we really don't get anything into him which makes one scene very curious to me which is where he's going to mm. the dog trainer now, the dog trainer, mm. no disrespect to dog trainers, um, isn't like some authority figure, not someone who could lock you up, but he is utterly like submissive to this guy. Like this guy basically goes on his own kind of obedience-fueled tirade at the dad, and the dad's just like, yep, I get it. It's like, listen, your fucking dog's not ready yet, dude. Yeah. You're going to listen to it. And it's like, <laughs> but like the smallness of it, like it's just, it's just a dog training facility, but it's, it's really giving it to him. And it's like he's willing to take, you know, I, I, the thing about him that doesn't make him sympathetic, but like maybe as a clue is he seems to believe in just like authority wherever he goes. And he's the authority in his house. But at this dog training mm. facility, he shuts up, barely says a word. And he really wants his dog, but they're like, nope, you can't have him. Well, we do know that he's a very big Frank Sinatra fan, <laughs> he does which kind of humanizes us to him. Grandpa Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I just, 
I keep, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Rob, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, I had the question about the dog trainer thing. I'm like, is that just the way it works in Greece? Like, you can't have a dog unless it's been trained by a, an approved something something that says like, yo, your dog has to be safe, so we have to finish this. Or, or maybe it, it is just what Brady said, a plot device to, to show that. Yeah, it's like, okay, your dog's with us now. We're holding the cards here. When he's at stage five, you can take the dog home and get out of here. <laughs> Go. I think I, I think I think he's so subservient to him because he is getting his own ethos spit back at him. Like for example, when he assaults Christina, he says, "I hope your kids have a bad personality for all the evil that you've caused my my family." Mm-hmm. And it's basically a regurgitation of what the dog trainer said to him earlier. Right. So I kind of see those scenes as, as mirrors of each other. Oh, that, that's excellent. Um, I think he's really internalized that, that dogma, if you will, pardon the terrible pun, and <laughs> kind of uses it for his own end <laughs> later, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, but I love I loved the dog training scene. I do. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've got yeah. some individual scenes that I, I want to talk about, but uh, we should... Um... Uh, run away and do our understudy. I, I think you heard it last week. Yeah, uh, you were listening to the podcast there And so we'll we'll do that. Sorry um, I didn't think of it soon enough to go like oh crap. Maybe Rachel would want to be in it <laughs> so <laughs> Next time we That's have okay. you on we'll we'll do better about that and, and figure out a no script and this and that um We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay But we've got two understudies And to be honest They're probably more famous anyway So try to catch the actors Try to guess the movies Tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y Couch This game called understudy Is happening, happening, happening Right now Oh, it's time! I know, I know, come on! Don't let her see you. Rapunzel, I'm not getting any younger down here. Coming, Mother. Hi, welcome home, Mother. Now, Rapunzel, now, how do you manage to do that every single day without fail? It looks absolutely exhausting, darling. Oh, it's nothing. Then I don't know why it takes so long. (laughs) Oh, darling, I'm just teasing. Hmm. <laughs> All right, so, Mother, so you know, uh, tomorrow is a very big day. Rapunzel, look in that mirror. You know what I see? I see a strong, confident, beautiful young lady. Oh, look, you're here, too. <laughs> I'm just teasing again. Stop taking everything so seriously. Uh. Okay, then, so, Mother, as I was saying, tomorrow... Rapunzel, Mother's feeling a little run down. Would you sing for me, dear? That'll do. Oh, of course, Mother. Flower, gleam and glow, let your power shine, make the clock reverse. Wait, wait. But, uh, bring back, uh, what was my name? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, heal what has been hurt. Change the fate's design, save what has been. Bring back what was... One, come on, hey. Rapunzel! Uh, what? So, uh, uh, Mother, I was saying, tomorrow's a pretty big deal, and uh, you didn't really respond, so I'm just gonna tell you, okay? 
It's my birthday. Uh-huh. Ta-da! No, 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 it can't be. I distinctly remember your birthday was last year. That's the funny thing about mothers. Really, it's, uh, they're an annual thing. Uh, mother, I'm turning 18, so I really wanted to ask, um, I'm sorry, uh, I really want for this birthday, I want for... Oh, okay, Rapunzel, please. Stop with the mumbling. You, you know how I feel about the mumbling, blah, blah, blah. It's very annoying. I'm just teasing. You're adorable. I love you so much, darling. Uh, I I want to see floating lights. Uh, uh, what? Oh, well, I was hoping you would take me to the floating lights. Oh, you mean the stars. That's the thing. I've charted the stars and... They're always constant, but then these things appear every year on my birthday, but mother only on my birthday, and I can't help but think, well, they're meant for me. I want to, I want to see them, mother. I'd, I'm sorry. I just need them for my window in person to know who they are. You want to go outside? Well, Rapunzel, look at you, as fragile as a flower. There's still a little sapling, just a sprout. You know why we stay up in this tower? I... No, but... That's right. To keep you safe and sound, dear. Guess I always knew this day was coming. Knew that soon you'd want to leave the nest. Soon, but not yet. But... Shh, trust me, pet. Mother knows best. That was undecided. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y couch. Well, I guess hence it, it's hard for me to, to use the dramatic voice and the hammy voice of that particular character. Everybody should send us a Twitter message and guess who we were trying to impersonate and what movie that was from. And it's hard for me to do that actor without it turning into Gonzo. <laughs> I, I, I think I got a little Bill Burr in there somewhere. If you thought it was Bill Burr, don't guess that because it's not right. <laughs> Rachel, did we lose you? No, I loved it. Oh, Yay. thank you. <laughs> You're still there. I, I honestly thought that was the most appropriate understudy <laughs> for this particular segment. Oh, so thank you. It. Yes, Brady did a good job of it. He tends to. You both did. Understudy is so, such a great portion of, of this show. Yes. Well, he picked uh, and it just, and found the scene. That's what I mean when Brady does a good job. Yeah. Of course I do <laughs> and, a good and job. And for those, for those listeners that might not have the, the Twitter, it's at Carney Couch. Yes. Yeah? Uh, yep. C-A-R-N-Y Couch, as the song said. But thank you for... for yeah, we should highlight that more. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was downplaying the Twitter for a little bit when you got us banned, Brady. <laughs> I, I did. I got us banned from Twitter. And then I made him get his own. <laughs> Actually, we should shout our individuals, too, because people can reach us that way as well, right? That's true. You can reach me at Wobbly Rain King. Uh, and I'm at Brady McLarson, Larson with an E. And Rachel, what might be yours? Um, my Twitter handle is at Rage of Paradise, but I've also been doing a lot of reviews on Letterboxd recently, so on Letterboxd, I'm Frontier Psych. Uh, uh, I wish it was Frontierologist, the name is too long, but <laughs> Frontier Psych. Frontier <laughs> yeah. Psych and Rage of Paradise. Yeah. Frontier Psychologist. Well, that's exactly what that's from. Very good. Very good reference there, Brady. I love the avalanches. Me too. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, at any rate, what I was thinking of uh, talking about a little bit was, uh, I, I guess, the way it was shot. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. we haven't yeah. even gotten into the text. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it won the Palme de Camera, right? Yeah, I think that's which, what, which is yeah. the can the camera de or camera de yeah, it. the 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 can mm -hmm. version of of best cinematography. Now I looked it up because I'm always interested in this nerdy stuff. It was shot on an MK2 Super 35, which takes mm. RE lenses. I, I actually was looking at the they're only four grand. That's that's pretty that's pretty Ooh. good for a 35 wow. millimeter anam anamorphic lens. But maybe I'll look into one of those if I ever get to shoot a movie. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, um, yeah, so it was shot that way, um, and I always, uh, I was talking earlier about the Dogma 85 thing, um, which, you know, all the diegetic sound, like when there's a splash of water, that, it didn't appear to me, I, it could have just been really well done, it didn't appear to me that it was fully in, it just sounded like if there's a door slammed, they slam the door, if there's a car mm -hmm. running, the car is running, so it seemed like they kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, again, uh, Rachel said it was on a cheap budget, so 250,000 euros or so? 250,000 euro, yep. Wow, Can't that's believe just, it. wow. Very, very cheap. What's that, and, like, uh, one point amazing. something it, mil, uh, or what's a euro to a dollar? Uh, I think it's more than a dollar. 2009. Yeah. Just, yeah. No, just, just, uh, still, either way, it's a relatively like, uh, I'll put it this way. Film. I actually went to Europe in 2009, and uh, it was expensive. <laughs> if, if you had American <laughs> dollars, um, yeah, they, they're they didn't go worth far. more. Yeah. yeah, it didn't go far. <laughs> well, I mean, it was 2008 was the crisis, right? So then they printed it by a different way. Yeah, we, we hit up a <laughs> whole lot of Swiss 7-Eleven equivalents uh, rather than going to restaurants. Like, okay, get some salami, <laughs> get some cheese. That's what we're doing. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's an incredible feat for, for that amount of money, of course. Uh, sorry, Rob, what, what were you saying? Uh, and then it also seems like it was naturally lit, too, right? Which is another thing of the Dogma mm -hmm. 85 idea. Uh, kind of like, hey, if you're doing a scene indoors, you use the indoor lamps and this and that. If you're doing something outdoors, if it's if it's dark, I'm sorry, it's just going to be pretty much black, and you might barely see. And we did see that with the fathers, so um, I think they did do that. I think they they didn't light it; they just used the natural ambient lighting of the room or the outside, and that's why there was probably so much outside sh shooting. I'm I'm speculating, right? So I'm I'm no I'm no expert. I have no sources. <laughs> so the one question I'll ask is how do you think they got the sound effect of that visceral tooth knocking scene oh like what do you think they used to substitute I'm guessing yeah I guess it's mm. not all entirely well that yeah that's a, it's like the movie's special effects scene <laughs> yeah I, yeah oh and then the cat scene made me... I don't like it when they hurt animals in movies, even if it's not real. I, I hate it, too. I, I hate it, too. You're a cat lover, Rachel. I think it's so. justified in the movie, but yeah, I, I don't like to see it. Yeah, I mean, that cat was totally a dick, but it's <laughs> totally justified. What was it? Like, it was a cow I mean, cat? He killed, he, he killed, he, he killed their, their brother. He has to go. Yeah, that is a deadly panther that ate their brother. 
<laughs> yeah, they ate their brother, and it just didn't move when he was going after it, too. Uh, yeah, that, that cat was... That's yeah. a fuck you cat. That's a you move first. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think about... I, I have to agree with, with... I'm not exactly sure if this film is under Dogma 95 rules. I, I don't think it necessarily is, but I think he definitely went with that aesthetic and that feel... Um, and it's interesting because, you know, he came from, like I said, very, you know, high, high budget um, advertising um, in, in Greece. Um, and this was kind of the way that he, he set off on his own was to do something really different, um, something that didn't look so, so shiny and, and polished. Um, so I definitely think there's an element of Dogma 95 in there. Um, one thing that it does carry over to from Dogma 95 is the style of acting. Mm. Um, so... In Dogma 95, there is a lot more in, improvisation, but uh, there was there were a lot of naturalistic scenes uh, in in here um, that the actors brought a lot to it, according to Lanthimos. And um, like for example, the the dance scene, the most famous scene in the film, um, he, he knew that the actors were going to do flash dance uh, and, and homage, but he didn't know like how long it was going to go on for. Like he didn't know like exactly what tone it was going to be. He didn't expect um, Angelica um, Papulia, the eldest sister, to keep going as long as she did. Yeah, and then um, sit down So that was a surprise to, to everyone, which I thought was really neat. <laughs> oh, yeah. As, sorry, I said Dirty Dancing earlier. Obviously, Flashdance. It's Flashdance. Yes, and, and well, yeah. I mean, also, yeah, no, it did go on uncomfortably long, and yeah, it, it was it worked to great effect, actually, because it made the parents seem... Uncomfortable. Like, I was, I was sitting here going like, wait, is this something that's part of their family thing? Because they're not standing up and smacking her, like, <laughs> what's going on? Right. <laughs> so. And I'm thinking about his, his other films that he did where they, they were more scripted, and I have to say, I really like his kind of non-scripted approach to some of this. And that's where I think some, maybe that's where some more of the, of the humor came out. Maybe some of the actors brought that as well. So, mm -hmm. just my theory. Yeah, I, I think um, I was reading up on it in our, our little break between recording this and watching it. But I think Roger, e Roger Ebert said something like, all the lines seem like they were um, in a tourist guidebook. <laughs> like all the oh, all yeah. the lines that he feels like he wrote, I guess. Uh -huh. <laughs> mm. So yeah, I guess just simple script and then play with it. You're a punk mm -hmm. singer. I'm sure you can play with it. <laughs> I think that Angelica Papulia has really shown herself to be an amazing standout actress. She was also great in The Lobster too. Um, oh, that's and, right. And, and Alp, she's a star. Who she play um, in so The I, Lobster? I do think she's the eldest one. Eldest. Wait, one. what? Okay. Oh, who's she yeah, playing the the, in the lobster? She was um, the the maid in the lobster. Oh, the one who steps on I the believe. puppy. The one that helped him um, kill oh. whoever. Right. When yes. they went into that room, yeah, that was uh. her. Um, and she is she's just really an amazing actress, and I feel like this this film hi highlights it. Um, I know Brady is probably wanting to see Alps, and she's luminous in Alps. She's so good in Alps. Yeah, um, I want to get... So it's just yeah. an amazing talent, I think. I, I want to be a Lanthimos completist at this point, because I'm, I'm almost there. <laughs> I just need to watch uh, <laughs> one or two more. I'm trying to think if there's any I've left off. 
but maybe not. Well, and like uh, Rachel said, there's short films that you have to dig out of somewhere, Brady. Oh, sure. I, I like yeah, short. there's some short. <laughs> so, um, I, okay, so here's a thought I have, and I'm going to try to do this delicately because I think Lanthimos would, would seriously upbraid me for trying to make anything he says in any of these movies too sentimental. He's one of the least sentimental, oh, outwardly sentimental filmmakers I can name, which is why he gets those mm-hmm. Hanukkah comparisons and Rob, your mm-hmm. Von Trier comparison. But um, mm-hmm. I want to try to... This is such, in many ways, a bleak movie because of the fact that it's tackling a very sinister ideology. Um, and I want to see if I can find like some rays of sunlight in it. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so here I go. Um, well, and first, because the question I was going to ask, and maybe Rachel, when I'm uh, when I'm done, you can help me with more of this, because you're you're a big mm-hmm. lobster fan. I need to see it again. But I was trying to figure out. I'm like, okay, I get how this plays with the favorite because there's so much about like domination and you know trying to weasel your way into as much power as you can get. And then I was thinking, mm-hmm. how would I like tie this to the lobster? And you guys really opened my eyes for it when we finally made the connection that, okay, we think of the power structure as this bigger entity, a kingdom or something, but it can also be a family. It can be as small as power between a couple individuals. And, and the idea that like maybe fascism within the family unit radiates out into fascism in the greater world. And maybe that's where the lobster can come in. It's like, well, choose your relationships well, uh, because, you know, your relationships with people and the family you choose to start are important. And, and think about that mother. Um, Rob, I, I loved what you said, that she must have gradually eased into it because that's chilling because I think that's how fascism does work yeah. for the average person is for the non-dominant, you know, not the key dominant people, they get coaxed along into it. Anyway, th- this is not my ray of sunlight, but, but <laughs> it's a thought of where they connect. But what I did find like, touching in a weird, dry, lanthimosy way was the connection between the sisters, which, like, mm. I thought there was, like, a lot of love there. And a scene I really liked that, like, spoke to me in a subtle way was when the youngest sister is offering to lick her sister to get something in return. And the oldest sister's like, well, I, I don't have anything. And she's like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. I'll do it anyway. And, like, that to me spoke of, in spite of, like, this shitty situation they're in and this very dry, flat-affected way they have of regarding each other because, uh, because they're stunted by what they're going through, um, there's, like, this need to transcend that and to find human connection. And so the sister is doing this transactional thing because she's seen her sister do it. Uh, but, like, what she really wants is just to touch your sister to connect with her sister even if there isn't a payment for it and I think you know with this and with the favorite what at least kind of leavens the bleakness is like wouldn't it be nice if things weren't so power-based and so transactional and in a way maybe that throws what a good thing like genuine human contact and emotion are into uh, starker relief yeah I like that um, Sorry, that went on longer than no, I No, no, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, just like the idea of, oh, we're all in this together, so, you know, I guess I'll... I, I'm supposed to lick you for something in return, but I'm, I, I want do it. to do it. 
I want to so connect if, with you. If there's then nothing to return, I'd I'd rather do it anyway. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I I really I like that you said that, and I I think that's a really really good good point and and a good theme, and I think speaks to like, you know, kind of like like you said the themes of this movie, which are like you know, isolation and um and areas where there's no social contract, like like this family, there is no social contract, there's no community. There's just the law of, of the father and, and, and the patriarchy is where things can really go awry. But there is rebellion against that. There is a sense of the sisters craving community and craving their their own um, independence. And there's the scene where um, the eldest is lying next to her brother, having had to perform uh, that, that act for him, you know, and she says, she quotes from Rocky Four. she says, you know, um, if you if you do that again, you know, bitch, I'll kill you, basically. Right. And don't show your you know, face this in this her. neighborhood. Right. I think I, I think I think that's I think I quoted that some, somewhat accurately, yeah, no, probably not. Right. Uh, but there was the word bitch in there somewhere. Uh, but um, and, and I think that's her, you know, basically saying, like, no, like this, this isn't OK. I, I, I know this isn't OK. I know this family isn't OK. And and she knows it. You know, I, I, ironically enough, because of the one source of social contract and community that community that got brought into their home, which was through film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, just really quick, speaking of the, the, the Haneke connection, um, actually, when Brady was talking, I had a thought that in some ways this theme is a little bit like Haneke's, a bit of a reversal on Haneke's normal theme, because like in Haneke films like Benny's video, um, films are shown to be like the enemy media is the enemy but in this film media actually um is is shown as as a positive it's a, it's a way for the sisters to to break out of this this fascism absolutely so it's really interesting well yeah it's, in it's really interesting and not to be too off task with this i almost looked at the movie lines that she's given you know the outside ideas the pervasive things that her father didn't like uh, that she would use them, if you've ever seen that Star Trek The Next Generation episode, uh, Darmok, where like they have, Picard has to speak to the alien in metaphor, and like Darm, mm. uh, Jalad at Tanagra when the walls fell and this and that. It's almost like that, like she's feeling this emotion and she doesn't have the lexicon from her parents to express it. So she just, you know, she's angry and she's defensive, so she's going to say what Rocky said you know, when he was angry mm -hmm. and defensive, because that's just right. the way to express, I guess. Right. And, and right. So that's it's, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like films give them a lexicon that they don't have, but that when, when, when this language is introduced, they can't unintroduce it. They can't see, they can't unsee what they've seen. Um, and the parents can't continue to, to pull the wool over the eldest eyes anymore because now that there are words that exist for those feelings, she feels them even more strongly, I think. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe that, in a way, even beyond the human connection thing, is, is the most uh, positive and just terrific statement of this is, uh, you know, we thankfully don't live in this house deprived of you know any messages deprived of a normal dictionary like we have that we have films so to anyone existing in the world they can seize on to things that are uh detrimental to fascism which are ideas right. and and you know beauty and art and expressions of kindness between each other 
So like, and, they, and I'm going to stop right there because I can feel Lanthimos being like, all right, tone down the sugar, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this world's still pretty fucked up. But like, it's, it's that one silver lining is like, you can't hope to contain it. And, and like with that thing with the cat and the hammer, it's like, he's saying, okay, but like fascism, like it's not that fascism can never fail to, to exist, but like it can't get its way because it's so fundamentally fucked up and repressive that like it can't possibly repress to the extent that it wants to. It eventually will double back on itself. Yeah, and 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 that art is powerful. Art can be in in the form of cinema can be a, a weapon against that. You know? And I totally I, I was thinking that so many times when I was watching this I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if these kids had the internet? Um, now of course the the family might find a way to you know oppress that in a a fascistic way or you know you know spin that as well but it's it's sort of like without without those social contracts this this is where they've gotten to but our version of quarantine um as strange and labyrinthian as as the rules are we're still connected to others like on on a on a zoom call that we had today and we're very fortunate to have that very you know what, okay, so here's just a little interesting thought I have um, about fascism now is what's like, because mm-hmm. like so much of this movie I'm finding like from the quarantine to the authoritarianism is like so speaking to now. Um, what's a curious twist is the source of the fascism in this movie is a lack of information. And mm. nowadays I feel like fascism is trying to play its hand with uh with too much bad information. Mm. So it's the tape recorder, right? right? It's saying that words mean things other than what they mean uh, because in the age of the internet, you can't possibly hold back information in the way maybe you formerly could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a way, if you, if you, oh, this will be a good segue. Uh, if you muddle the waters of what things mean, then you know, if somebody else were to come in from the outside and say words to you, you wouldn't be able to interpret them the way that uh, they wanted to express them to you. Right. Like, the the whole aphasia thing is really interesting in this. And I say muddles the waters, because, and I, I, if anybody's got more to say about that, please do. I was just going to say, I wanted to talk about the swimming pool at some point. Let's talk about the swimming pool. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, um... I think the swimming pool is a really interesting thing because, you know, there is this structure of the father is in charge and, and he's instituting all these rules, be them logical or not. And um, the, uh, the swimming pool is the place where the eldest daughter can shine, where actually uh, all the daughters can shine and kind of out um, outstrength the... Uh, the favorite child, the brother, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's constant scenes of her mm. just, like, in the water, chasing him out of the pool and smacking him, and, you know, when she's playing, like, yeah. Jaws and this and that. Um, and it's... And there's, like, tests that when they hold their breath and they go, like... And the father still does the thing where he goes, like, uh, you obviously win. Also, you did worse than last time. <laughs> like, that he totally <laughs> didn't win, but because he's the favorite child, like, he still gets the honor bestowed upon him. Um, but yeah, so, uh, there's a thing about the pool, about the water, and, you know, the, I'm not quite sure how to wrap in the whole fish getting dumped in there and hunted scene, 
uh, with it, but uh, I don't know. Discuss. Discuss. I, I think that's very astute, and I never noticed that until now. And I, I think you're totally right. Um, water and, and the pool could represent, like, the feminine in this film. Um, feminine power, feminine independence. Um, you know, the, the sisters becoming Jaws and, you know, <laughs> finding a way to chase, chase the, the, the brother out. Um, the fish, I mean, you, you kind of pointed it out that, you know, dad's not very asexual with the spear gun in there. <laughs> so I think, that, I, think that, I think that fits right into it, to be honest with yeah, you. You just waited until they died uh, from the chlorine. <laughs> and then said, I totally <laughs> shot him with the spirit <laughs> and, and and I think that there is there are some some Oedipal themes for sure, just from a from a psycho and and, and an analytic perspective that I'm sure that Lanthimos would be down with. He he really loves Freudian psychology and uses that a lot throughout his films. Yeah. So I, I think you would agree. Yeah, yeah, my take on the fish is uh, I think similar to what Rachel is saying is definitely like a, an inadequacy thing, like, and, and at this point in the film, we're laid into it, and I think he's feeling his power more threatened. So he's like, "Fuck it, I'm gonna be the hunter." Yeah, I'll show them that I'm the literally hunting fish in my pool. Well, yeah, and she's like stands up to him too when he's like, "No, there's three fish, not two. And she's like, "Oh, the other one must have showed up then a little bit later. I'm still right. This is my zone, <laughs> you know." Yeah, it's her zone. And That's and good. also like you know, there's the the whenever she's wearing the swimming suit, she gets power and agency too. Mm -hmm. Like even if she's away from the pool, she gets the airplane. Right. Wow, this is great, guys. So there's there's some there's just something. Of, I, I mean, I guess that's it. It's a it's a symbolic thing where it's like this is her domain and this and that and this is what uh, yeah. gets her it's, out. <laughs> I guess absolutely. And speaking of that, like if it, if it's not too too late to discuss this, I mean, what do you guys think about that that open ending, which again to me recalls the lobster of what you know we don't know whether or not he blinded himself. I feel like we don't know whether or not. Eldest survive. What do you guys think? I don't. I I got distracted because we were watching an open source uh, <laughs> closed caption, and when the captions went off and there was going to be no more dialogue, just like when they opened, it just said "poop, poop" on the screen because that's how the guy who made the captioning signed it. Um, I saw that. I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> but yeah. But so I got hard. a little distracted, and I didn't really think too much about the her being in the. Tr I th I thought it was just. It mirrors the shot, which I know they, um, I, I saw it happening uh, when she gets in the trunk and the motion light's waiting to go off. I'm like, oh, they're just going to let mm. this shot hang until that motion mm. light goes off because that's, you know, the whole ambient lighting sort of thing. And uh, that'll mm -hmm. be the, the action that cuts the scene. Um, mm -hmm. So I just kind of looked at it like that. It's like... Um, you know, there's no motion light to go off, so life goes on, and uh, we got to end the scene somewhere, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't get to know if she gets out or not. Right. Um, I guess I was wondering, because she unlocks the trunk without... I was like, could she unlock the trunk from inside? I don't know. And, and I don't think that she was going to suffocate in there. So I guess I think she gets out. I think she was just playing it kind of coy. Okay. With, it, with the viewer, the mom. So, I definitely think it's ambiguous, but I don't know if it's possible to have, like, gradations of ambiguity, <laughs> where it's like, yeah. I'm not on the, like, could be either one. 
Um, because of like what a forceful point about how sinister fascism is this movie's making, I lean mm-hmm. more heavily toward kind of like in a Romeo and Juliet way, like, look at what your mm. dumb shit did, you asshole. Your mm. daughter's dead yeah. because you kept her locked up and she just tried to get free. So like I'm probably seventy five percent the the tragic ending, but it is ambiguous. Yeah. So so there is that chance of, of something else and uh, of course, Lanthimos, you know, intentionally left it that way. So I have to entertain that that happier ending is possible, too. It's a Schrodinger's trunk. <laughs> yeah, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> she is simultaneously alive and dead forever. I just, I, I find his endings to films very interesting in, in that way. And I, I really think he he has a very Hitchcock way of ending films. Um, and I think a lot of that is due to his love of Hitchcock, like the rear rear window and, and stuff like that. Um, sometimes his endings to me are very frustrating, and sometimes to me they're just perfect and spot on. And I, I definitely feel like this one airs more towards the side of a of, of really good ending. I, um, I think he's just... And I oh, have sorry, to agree with, with Brady. Like, I, I want her so bad to get out of that trunk. Like, <laughs> and actually, in I, I just remembered in the screening that I went to in, in, in Honolulu, there were people saying, get out of the trunk before it ended. <laughs> so I think people were very invested in, in this character arc as well, but I, yeah, I don't think that she makes it either. But, uh, I was just yeah. going to make a joke and say, I think he ends his movies because he's doing them on a budget, so he's just waiting for the, the reel to run out. <laughs> it's like, we got to use all the film stock. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I'd much rather she live, like, because fuck this asshole. I don't need him to be punished. I don't need anything from him. You know, and for this this poor lady to become part of a sins of the father plot, but but yeah, it maybe seems like it's going that way. But I yeah. I hope she makes it. I'm pulling for her, and, and I hope she gets out into the world and watches more dumb '80s movies. Well, she deserves it. Yeah, I think we can close <laughs> close the uh, the discussion with a fun hypothetical, which is. Okay, so when these kids leave this house and they go out into the world for the first time and they start meeting normal people, uh-huh. what do you think conversations with them are like? Um. <laughs> I imagine it'll be somewhat like when we're all allowed to go to a bar again. <laughs> we're, we're just like, what's the... What's a what's a drink? What's a what's a handshake? Yeah. A handshake is a is a a handshake is a small yellow flower. Yeah, one of them's <laughs> getting kicked out of a cafe when they show up and order a scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a confusing couple of years. They'll try to lick each other's keyboards. Yeah, God I'll, help them when they oh, see I an actual that. keyboard. Yeah. I'll make sure to say to somebody, uh, you know, when next time I go to a bar. Um, so, how many airplanes did you collect that fell out of the sky during <laughs> quarantine? <laughs> I'd be like, what? Um, but in all in all in all seriousness, you know, it would it would be a rude awakening uh, for the for these folks, and I I think that's part of the you know part of the message of, of the film. You know, once again, hearkening back to the the problems with, with isolation when you have no social contract, like the inability to function on your own outside of that fascist uh, rule. So, yeah. Yeah. One day we're all going to get out of here. (laughs) Never get out of this maze. (laughs) Never get out of this maze. Not to draw too many parallels, but yeah. Um, Do you want to help us pick a movie for next week, Rachel? 
Well, I already cast my vote. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you're you're an Evangelion as well, right? Oh yeah, I definitely think we should. Uh, Y'all should to do that, and I will definitely love to to listen and hear the, the the guests that you bring in. I'm excited for that one. If you guys do it. Oh yep. well, I mean, you could be a guest. We, I figured out this phone call thing. Perfect. I've done it twice now. <laughs> it sounds good. <laughs> Finally. Actually, if, if if you guys were to do Evangelion, it's very much. If if if, the, if these three weeks would be like a, a fucked up father's trilogy, starting with Daniel Plainview going to unnamed father <laughs> and Gendo Ikari, I mean, this would be a whole theme, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> okay, fucked up fathers. So. All right. If we if we do Evangelion uh, soon, we probably won't do it next. We'll we'll be sure to have both you and Kyan on, and and I'll have to learn new things to figure out how to have two <laughs> phone calls at the same time. Um, let me see, cool. Brady. Do you have anything you want to put up? Um, give me a minute. I'm I'm now reconsidering this in a fucked up father context, and I'm trying to pick one about that. Uh, well, I mean, if we're okay, talking about... Okay, I got about, one, I got one, I got one. Like, Royal Tannenbaums is a good fucked up father movie. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. <laughs> uh, okay, I have mine. Um, it's a big boy. Uh, so, I just started my 1990s project. I'm going through all the 90s Best Picture nominees and other films uh, chronologically. Mm. So, I'm in the year 1990, mm. and I sat down with Tess today to watch Godfather Part 3. Tess had never seen a Godfather before. Um, and Godfather Part 3 was fine. Uh, but I'm going to put Godfather up there because that's a good, complex, messed up father story. And then uh, maybe Tess could watch it and uh, finally see it. Oh, but we just did Citizen Kane two weeks ago. Yes. Why, why those are... I'm going too, too many much for the movies. classics. <laughs> yeah, too many good... Oh, <laughs> You're right. I do love our bad movie casts. Yeah, I mean, we haven't had one for a while. I was trying to think of, of one. There was, I was trying to pull it up. There was a movie that I downloaded that I was just like, it was on Comet or something, and I'm like, this seems like a good bad movie. Oh, I'll suggest, I've suggested this one before. Um, Night of the Comet. Night of the Comet. Yes, it's from the early 80s, and it's uh, uh, the sister is going to go to the dance, and, and her her sister's pissed at her, and then this comet comes over, and then everybody's undead, and then now they have to run around the world. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I've never even heard of it. Wow. Hmm. Can Here. I come up with something as bad? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my pick. Well, why don't we just pick, pick up each one? I'm trying to figure out a way. Uh, we have a tradition... Uh, Rachel, to figure out the most convoluted way to pick the next movie. Um, we <laughs> lately have just been doing um, uh, the uh, one, two, three, shoot. Here's what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you pick a number between one and ten. Okay. And don't tell us what it is. And then we'll do okay. a one, two, three, shoot. Okay. And yeah. uh, if... If the number that we combine to is odd and you picked an odd number, then that'd be Brady. And if the wait, <laughs> so so basically I'm trying to figure it out, Rachel. Once we've shot and we'll say when, indicate whether you were thinking of even or odd. Oh, we'll add her number to ours and then. Oh, okay. Then that's how we'll do it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, yeah. Wait, yeah, because my way didn't make sense. Um, okay, 
Okay. Like even or odd? So pick even to odds, Brady. Even. Okay, so I'll be odd. Okay. And I will one, two, three, shoot. Okay, so we have a three. What was your number, Rachel? A seven. A seven. Three. Even. Three plus three is, is ten. I mean, three plus seven is ten, and I was... I was even. Okay, I guess we're doing <laughs> Godfather. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. That's how we picked it. Bad I'm daddies. actually really excited about that. It's a really good film. You guys will like it. Yes, indeed. I, I have think. seen it before. Ah. Put your hands down. I keep, I keep I hope, Brady I keeps raising his hands and disconnecting his mic. <laughs> like, stop putting your hands on um, your it, head. It has my favorite um, fictional attorney. As an attorney, it's very <laughs> important to pick your favorite film attorneys. Indeed. Brady, have you ever seen The Venture Brothers? Oh, yeah. I love it. So my favorite attorney is that guy that's growing out of that other guy's chest. You know, oh, the one awesome. that talks like this. <laughs> The one from uh, the one that's supposed to be Gregory Peck. <laughs> He's my favorite. Uh, that is a great choice. I love that show, and I want it to come back. Indeed. I I just finished um, rewatching it because I had never seen it all all the way through, and it it is honestly brilliant. One of the best shows on TV, I would say. And I'm sad that they got canceled. This yeah, year, Tess finished so. rewatching okay. it recently too. Yeah, it's basically Tess's favorite show. One of. Mm-hmm. I still mm -hmm. haven't seen past season five, so I still need to watch six and seven. I stopped two, and and Rob, I'll, I'll tell you that the last three seasons are the last two seasons are amazing. Excellent. They're really good, and I, I I hadn't seen it in like ten ten years when I went back to it. So yeah. it's really aged well, I think. It'll be good. It'll be good. We'll have to yeah. sprinkle in some some venture voices into our 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 uh, understudy. It'll work out. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think I think Brady could be Doctor Girlfriend. <laughs> oh, my yes. favorite character! Yeah, heck yeah, I love Doctor G. Super villain, super villain. Okay, so the very last <laughs> thing we do is we say who was mentioned this week of our colloquial friends, so we can tag them. I believe it was Gary Larson. I and yeah, it's either <laughs> Gary Larson or my friend Doctor Girlfriend. Um, <laughs> We'll go with my dad, though, because his birthday's coming up in a couple days. Happy Aww. birthday, Father. Love you. Okay, well, this was a lot of fun, Rachel. Thanks for joining us on the phone. I'm glad we, uh, we got it done and, and can't wait to see you in person when all this nonsense is over. I know. I feel really honored to be a part of Car Carnivorous Couch, longtime listener. Uh, really happy to talk to y you guys, and uh, you guys are wonderful film critics, so very happy uh, to be here. We're lucky to have you as well, a listener, and thank you for this cast. Yes. Rachel, you were great. And we got to say the obligatory <laughs> longtime listener, first time caller, right? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> okay, long time, first time. Uh, Gary Larson, theme song. <laughs> Carnivorous Couch. It happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous Couch with Brady and Rob and Rachel. <laughs> One of them's getting kicked out of a cafe when they show up and order a scrotum. Fuck this asshole. Poop. Poop.